Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? Save your gate by Russell Kirk. This ain't nicht, this ain't nicht, every nicht and hour. Fire and sleet and candle licht, and Christ receive thy saula, a likewake dirge. This old street, scarcely wider than a lane, could not be long. At the far end of it there loomed a Norman tower of a parish church. Mark Findlay had the notion that if he were to hurry the length of the street and turn to the right beyond the church, he might reach a modern square with cinemas and a taxi rank. Needing to catch the midnight train for London, he must find a cab soon. And, his cough growing worse, he must get out of the wet. In Northminster, this Christmas Eve, a light snow had fallen, then melted, lingering as fog. Between trains, he'd strolled the streets for nearly three hours, his head so filled with worries that he scarcely had noticed anything he passed. Looking back the way he had come, and coughing hard, he saw by the great clock on the cathedral tower that it was nearly half-past eleven. In more ways than one, he had lost his sense of direction. He was uncertain what way the railway station lay. This was a charming narrow street of Georgian houses, or perhaps some of them from Queen Anne's time, two or three little whitewashed steps going up to each door. That he could make out with the low-lying chilly mist. There seemed to be no shop fronts, and only one hanging signboard, a few yards directly in front of him, visible by gaslight, this being perhaps the only lane in Northminster still lit by gas lamps. The Cross Keys, Paul Mariner, resident manager. Above this gilt lettering was the well-painted symbol of two crossed keys. Decades ago had he glimpsed this street sometime. He had been in Northminster only once before, early in the war. Much of the town had been uglified since then, but this street, supposing it to be the same street, looked unchanged. Had he seen that pub sign before? As he lingered on the corner, coughing ferociously, a clergyman brushed past him in the dim light. Could you tell me, Finley began, but the parson hurried on, umbrella over his head. Perhaps he had taken Finley for a tramp, what with his cough, his pale face and his mud-splashed coat. Someone else, looking rather like a civil servant, was striding in the opposite direction, on the other side of the street. I'm sorry, but could you help me? Finley called to him. A smug face was turned toward him briefly, but there was no slackening of pace, and the second man went round the corner. Somewhere he must get directions. Should he go a few paces down that street, ring the bell for the porter, if there might be a night porter at a small hotel of this sort nowadays, and ask his way to a cab rank or to the station? He hesitated. For the past several months he had evaded most decisions, big or small. Yes, he had best try the cross keys. The stained-glass windows were alight in that church at the far end, Findlay noticed, as he made his way past the Georgian doors, and a bell was tolling from the tower. Just as he was about to mount the stone steps, another coughing fit racked him. Bent and hacking, he leaned towards the bow front of the cross keys. Then the hotel door opened, and down the steps to him came a lean man. "'That's a graveyard cough,' the man said sympathetically. "'I could hear you in the parlour. It wasn't the cough that carried him off, but the coffin they carried him off in. Do come in for a whisky. Startled, Finley contrived to gasp, I need to catch a train. The man had taken his arm, a forceful, tall man, with a whimsical, handsome face. Hacking like that, you'll never reach the station. This stranger, 
or was he quite a stranger, told him. I'll see that you make your train if you must. He held open the heavy door. Within the corridor was warm and colourful, with dark oak wainscoting and good framed prints on the walls. But it's after hours, Finley protested. Oh, the public bar's closed, but at the cross keys, they always can serve something to a bona fide traveller like you. The man was briskly helping him off with his muddy coat. Come into the residence parlour. I've put up for the night and the manager knows me. I don't think there's time, Finley muttered as he was propelled into the parlour. This insistent host, who seemed tolerably sober, spoke like an educated man and behaved like an officer. Time? The lean man chuckled. It's time, gentlemen, time. That's no problem for you and me, is it? I say, you're a Canadian, aren't you? I know you. You're Finley, Mark Finley. I was thinking of you, coincidence, as I said once, before I heard that cough of yours in the street. Finley stared into that confident face. Had he known this man? A certain recklessness made those bold features memorable. Perhaps this man had been a soldier. To Finley came some faint memory of an hour's tipsy talk, a curious conversation with a man who had looked rather like this long ago. Some chance acquaintance, but encountered where? Did we meet? Why, right here in 39, Finley inquired. I'm sorry, but I don't recall your name. I'm Ralph Bain. Of course it's here. Take that chair, the lever one, Finley. Jimmy! The corpulent, florid-faced porter or waiter in scarlet jacket and brass buttons ambled toward them. Whiskey and sodas, Jimmy, Bain ordered, and put more coals on that fire. You remember Mr. Finley, Jimmy? He's passing through Northminster, unless, after all, we can persuade him to take a room. Anyhow, he's bona fide. It's your sort that makes this job a pleasure, Mr. Finley, sir, said Jimmy, who was an Irishman. The fire blazed up on the broad hearth below the Adam chimney place. The whisky glasses came promptly on a heavy silver tray. Finley had ceased to cough. Surely this was the jolly hotel of his dim memory with the faded upholstery or shiny leather of its easy chairs, the green draperies of his tall windows, the solid dark furniture of yesteryear, the big oriental rug a bit frayed, and especially that massive framed painting of the Highland cattle. Now he even recalled the looming silver tea urn on the mahogany sideboard. A few people still sat in this residence parlour, perhaps waiting for the midnight peal from the cathedral's bells. Several of them had nodded to him or smiled at him when Bain almost had forced him into an armchair, and an old lady said, Good evening. Could he have seen her before? Or perhaps the granddaughter of the girl companion beside her? Ralph Bain he did recollect fairly well by this time. Rather a wag, this Bain, he recalled, with a talent for telling stories that seemed tall. They had taken to each other, he and Bain, when in that year, so long vanished, they had happened to fall into talk in this very pub. The Bain of Finley's memory had seemed no younger than a man who sat opposite him now. His host must be remarkably well preserved, not a grey hair to his head. Did he dye his hair? Bain had been chatting with him lightly for several minutes, but Finley, needing to catch that train and fretting about tomorrow's hard decisive conference, scarcely had paid attention. What a heartening room this was, everyone in it good-natured and healthy-looking. The sound of the ancient church bell penetrated through the thick drapes of the bow front. Yes, it was a single bell tolling, not a peal. At any moment, Finley feared the tolling might be mingled with the chimes of the cathedral clock, sounding the third quarter of the hour, which would mean that he'd have a narrow squeak to make his train, even though the trains generally ran late or lingered at the platform. Bain noticed that his guest was listening to the bell. That's a good sound, isn't it, Finley? Lord knows when that church commenced the custom. There was a Saxon or Danish church on the site, you know. The day before Christmas, from time out of mind, they've tolled that bell from early morning to midnight, one stroke for every year since the nativity. 
The church is our friend Canon Hudman's, you remember, besides his being chapter treasurer. They must be coming close to stroke 1,939. Shall we drink to that? Thanks, Mr. Bain, Finlay heard himself saying. He was drowsy in this cordial room after the long ride down from Aberdeen and after tramping those Northminster streets in miserable vacillation. But no, I'd order another round for us except for my train. I'm going to have to say good night. We keep a flight in Aberdeen now, if you ever get up to. Call me Bain or Ralph or Rafe. That whiskey's your medicine, Finlay. I told you so before your cough stopped. As for the train, why, you'll be aboard it, if you really mean to be. I give you my word. I'll see you to the cab. We have heard the chimes at midnight, Master Shallow. Forgive me, but you've not been long this side of the border, I take it. They came down from Aberdeen today, Bain, and if I don't meet three important men for breakfast at the Hyde Park Hotel, here Findlay grimaced, it's all up with me. I've been in oil rigs in Aberdeen for the past two years. I'm not so young as I was, and my wife's in a bad way. Now, I'm in deep trouble. Not enough ready money, and the bank's pressing me hard about the overdrafts. The careless smile faded from Bain's rough mouth. Bain stared at him, incredulously. Why, Findlay, that sort of thing doesn't signify for you and me here, you know. Overdrafts? Oh, don't you know? Don't you, actually? The moment I dragged you in, I thought you seemed a bit odd. If you don't mind me saying so, it was as if I'd taken hold of a ghost. I'm told that some people scarcely are aware of the change when they've just crossed the border. If you don't mind, Mark Finley, old man, just how was it you died? Jimmy was setting two more whiskies before them on the little Indian table. Bain must have given him a sign. The cosy parlour went round for Finley. Hadn't he thought too often of dying, and dying swiftly, whatever the consequences? Hadn't he thought of that escape all the hours he'd walked down those Northminster streets? Did the death urge show in his face? For a moment, the two commercial travellers in the corner, and the old lady with her girl companion, and smiling Jimmy, seemed to fade into nothingness. Finley saw only Bane's daredevil face gone sober and pallid on the instant. Had one whisky been too many for Bane, or for himself? What do you mean? Finley tried not to stammer. I'm no deader than you are. I might as well be dead, though, if I'm not in London eight hours from now. Dead? Bane laughed, though it seemed to require some effort from him, almost as if Bane were frightened. Of course we're not dead, old man. Here, do I seem dead? Leaning forward, he gripped Finley's hand. There, a good fleshy shake, eh? Why, we wouldn't be just here if we were dead, truly dead, would we, Finley? I put the question to you too bluntly. That's one of my silly habits got in the army. What I meant to say was this. How did you cross the border? Bain drank, and then resumed. There's no harm in calling it dying. We all have to pass through the jaws of death to reach the cross keys, or any other good sort of place. Corruption, putting on incorruption and all that. We all have to die so that we can rise, don't we? Was it, was it hard, your crossing? Is the cross keys the first place you've come to this side of eternity? If so, there's the more honour for me, as the first friend to greet you. Bain drained his glass. Now, drink your dram, old man, because there's nothing left for us to fret about. Never, never. It wasn't the cough that carried him off, but the coffin they carried him off in, I say. Could it have been that you crossed the border just outside the door of this hotel when I heard you hacking there? Finley stood up. Was this host of his drunk, or was he a lunatic? Bain seemed neither, but he might be both. Had he and Bain talked of something like this so long ago? Not this precisely, but something about death and eternity? Finley couldn't be bothered, though Bain was rather amusing, not with that train to catch. Thanks again, he told Bain. My train won't wait, and it's not just my own future depending on that breakfast tomorrow. There's my wife, my sick wife to think of. Good night. If you're ever in Aberdeen, 
You really don't follow me, do you, old man? Bane frowned in seeming perplexity. If you leave now, you'll miss Canon Hoodman. Train won't wait. Why, any train you want will be waiting for you whenever you want it. I'll be taking a train myself to Ayrshire after a night or two here at the Cross Keys. There's a young woman I mean to walk the moors with. Time doesn't signify. There's no time for you and me, thank God, Finlay. Why, we've not even begun to talk. How can I explain? You and I aren't dead. Though I died once, and I suppose you have too. We've only just begun to live fully. Look here, Mark Finley. do you believe in what you read in the papers? Half the time. Excuse me, but where did you hang my hat and coat? Jimmy, Bain called, but he did not tell Jimmy to fetch his guest's coat and hat. Jimmy, find us today's post, and the Times too. Mr. Finley needs to see them. Newspapers inserted in those old-fangled wooden rods were hanging by the sideboard. It passed through Finley's mind that the Cross Keys Hotel, like a beetle of a hostelry preserved in amber, retained amenities that had vanished nearly everywhere else. Jimmy brought two papers. They were full of news about the military stalemate. On the front page of both, the date was 24th September 1939. What the hell is this? Finley was two-thirds angry. It was 1939 when I came to Northminster the first time. This is now, said Bain. There's only now, praise be, whatever now you like, whatever now I like. Sit down, old man. You need somebody with a head and a tongue better than mine to inform you. I say, Jimmy, Canon Hoodman still is in the house talking to Mr. Mariner. Could you give him my compliments and ask him to join us, if it's no trouble to him? Tell him that I may even have a ghost to show him. Well, in any event, he must have missed his train by this time, Finley reckoned. After all, how much did that matter? Those three insufferable men at the Hyde Park Hotel would do nothing for him, as the odds stood. The intended meeting had been a last forlorn hope. Fortune had conspired against him and the stars in their courses. He might as well finish this whisky. He might as well finish many whiskies. Now it was all over for him. And all over for Marion. Poor sick Marion. She had told him he would fail. His nerve had failed him and he had failed her. In his bag, at the station luggage room, there lay secreted a sufficient quantity of prescribed capsules, long hoarded. He had feared that he might require them, the whole lot of them, after that Hyde Park breakfast. After he should leave this hotel, he could swallow them at the station without having to face that grim breakfast after all. Now he had all the time in the world. If a coroner should call it an overdose, there would be some insurance money left for Marion anyway, despite their having borrowed heavily these past six months. It is a far, far better thing I do, Finley sat down again. There were worse places to spend one's last evening than this snug and well-appointed hotel parlour with this friendly madman to entertain him. Jimmy, said Finlay, another round of drinks. Nothing matters now. Bain had been peering at him as if doubting whether this guest were flesh and blood. Actually, Bain said, it does matter, don't you know, old man? It matters if you've not yet crossed the border. It matters if really you're here at the Cross Keys by some uncanny chance, or by providence, I should say, if you're to understand Canon Hoodman, who explains mysteries as well as anybody could, you're not to be half seas over. I beg your pardon, Jimmy. Forget those whisky sodas and bring us a pot of tea and some sandwiches, Jimmy. His last slim hope of survival abandoned, Finley was willing to humour this quizzical lunatic called Ralph Bain. He did feel hungry after those vain, bewildered hours in the foggy streets. All right, he told Bain, have your fun with me. That was a clever ploy, putting those old newspapers on the racks. Were you merely hoping that some fool, any fool, might come in tonight and be teased by you? 
Or do you play these macabre tricks at this hotel every night? Why am I a ghost and not you? It's a private joke, very nearly, that ghost, Bain said. The canon and I call anybody a ghost who turns up here or turns up anywhere else in eternity but doesn't belong. Anybody who hasn't properly crossed the border but gets into eternity somehow, for a moment, so to speak, and then passes back into time again. Let me tell you, Finley, you're a rarity. Here at the old cross keys on Christmas Eve, in the year of our Lord, 1939, reading in the papers about the Twilight War, you're experiencing a timeless moment. You're in two states of being simultaneously, I fancy. Bain leaned towards him earnestly. Yet I don't think you've passed through the jaws of death. The canon says he's met such people more than once, but I haven't. You believe you're alive, and so you are, though not only in the way you think of life. I fancy you'll leave this pleasant room, whenever you need to, and you'll catch that confounded train of yours, and you'll find yourselves back in whatever year of grace you fancy you belong in. That's why I call you a ghost. Bane grinned at him reassuringly. You don't belong here, and yet you do belong. To me, you're unreal. You frighten me a trifle, as ghosts are supposed to. The next thing I know, I may be looking straight through you at the back of the chair. You needn't dread me. Oh, but here's the tea, and here's the cannon. The cannon's grip was as hearty as Bane's. Canon Hoodman was a cheerful North Countryman with a broad mouth and thick spectacles. You may not remember me, Mark Finley began. Not just yet. Or you may recall only a few words we spoke to each other. If you like, I can offer you a good many more words now. Canon Bain was saying, I lug in an old acquaintance from the street and then find he's not crossed the border, or so he says. It's a conundrum. When first you and Finley and I sat down together, I wished we could go on talking forever and hear the possibilities come to pass, but Finley doesn't understand and he wants to be off immediately to his private misery. Was this purported canon some actor recruited by the whimsical Bain? Certainly Hoodman looked his part, collar and black suit and all, Finley forced himself to enter into the spirit of this rag. Here is the question, Finley told Hoodman. Is Ralph Bain crazy or am I? I'd like to know what sort of innkeeper puts 1939 newspapers into this residence parlour. You seem out of sorts, Finley, Hoodman said, but melancholy men are the wittiest. The manager of this hotel is a very sensible person and he puts those papers there because he, like everybody else in this house, knows that tonight is Christmas Eve. The verger is nearly done tolling the bell in my old church in the year of our Lord, 1939. Another wag. Finley chuckled mordantly, pouring himself another cup of tea with shaking hand. Are you suggesting, Canon, if you really are a Canon, that I'm in hell, having coughed myself to death in the street outside, and that I'm condemned to spend eternity in this room, a little pocket of time called December the 24th, 1939? The canon smiled, a warm and humorous smile. Au contraire, Finley, if you and Bain and I were in hell, I fancy we'd not be discussing these mysteries. The damned, as I understand it, have no past and no future, no memories, no expectations. You're in a very different state from that. This sly game wasn't unpleasant, and afterwards there would be those deadly capsules at the station, the door out of this prison house of life leading to the jail yard. With that final ace in the hole, why not play up? Well then, Canon Hoodman, Finley went on, if we three and the other people in this parlour are in prison forever in a cosy moment in time, how is it that you and Bain talk of remembering me? And how can I remember Bain, though I've forgotten you, if I ever met you before? If we're all dead men, how can we talk about memories and expectations, especially expectations? I told you, old man, Bain thrust in, we're not dead, none of us. We've come fully alive. 
And we're not locked up here, it's just that we've chosen or fallen into this one timeless moment. It's a good particular timeless moment, isn't it? No special significance to it, I suppose. Simply three friends arguing comfortably before a fire on a winter's night. But we have our choices of moments to experience afresh. It's up to you and the canon and me separately. This moment is a random sample of timeless moments. There are stronger moments, far stronger for any of us. Why, if he chose just now, the canon might be praying some drafty church at Smokefall, I suppose, or could be trading stories with some good chaps in a tent in the western desert, say, instead of disputing with you. It's a question of what you wish to experience all over again. As they talked, the heavy tolling of that church bell contributed to the illusion of timelessness that these two fantastics had contrived for him. Outside in the street there sounded the footfalls and murmuring of a good many people with now and again children's laughter, folk on their way to midnight service at that church. The hotel was real, the people outside were real, these two clever companions of his were real. Findlay wondered about his own reality. The canon was speaking now. Yes, all good moments or hours or days that you ever experienced are forever present to you, whenever you want them, after you've crossed the border. We were told that we shall have bodies, we have them. You say that you've not yet crossed the border, Finley. Well, once you have crossed, and if really you're still in time, that might be a long while yet for you, then, God willing, you'll understand, as we two can't make you understand. What's wrong with the present everlasting moment, Bain inquired. I know, no cigars. Jimmy, fetch that box of cigars. Finley chose a cigar, presumably his last, a Burma cheroot. He seemed to recall that good Burma cheroots had been easier to find in 1939. Where nowadays did the resident manager of the Cross Keys obtain his supply? All right, Finley responded, keeping his temper despite this waggery. For the sake of argument, I'll accept your metaphysics. We're not dead, but in eternity, you say. Well, what sort of great expectations are we supposed to indulge, aside from another sandwich and another cigar? You two talk well, but this occasion might turn boring, if it were to run on forever. The canon took him up. As Bain said, it's your choice of all you've experienced. Suppose that your wedding day was among the best days of your life, Mark, or what you call your life. Think of this. You can experience that wedding whenever you like, for eternity. You mean that I can remember my wedding day? I don't need you to tell me that, canon. You mean that happiness is emotion recollected in tranquility. That's not enough for me. I don't have any tranquility left. The canon shook his head amicably. No, it's not memory that I mean. It's this, rather, if you're given grace, the good things of your life are experienced in all the fullness of your senses whenever you desire them. True, there's another side to the coin. If you've rejected the grace of God, then the evil things of your life are forever present, and you can't escape them. This unexpected moment here in the cross keys may be a sign for you, Mark Finley, a sign that you may know grace in death if you choose it. Ah, how these two jesters, these masters of the dry mock, stuck to their hobgoblin consistency. Finley laughed sardonically. So you two can convert yourselves into bridegrooms in the twinkling of an eye whenever you're in that mood. Not I, Bain admitted. I never married. I joined my regiment a few weeks after we met here, Finley, and I was good at killing, but at nothing else. After El Alamein, where I took some bullets, they gave me the military cross. When the war was over, I got my little pension and drank hard every day. Any girl would have been an idiot to have married me. I asked one, and she said it would never do, and she was right. That's the young woman I mean to walk on the moors again with when I leave the cross keys. Why trouble yourself with her, Finley objected, grinning. There's no marriage or giving in marriage, I'm told, where we three are supposed to be just now. 
or can you have your fun all the same? So far as marriage goes, Bain said quietly, we don't want what we didn't know at the other side of the border. As for fun, I found in the end that love was better. Have you ever read Augustine? The canon asked Finley. No, he learned that truth while he was still in time. I take it, canon, that you can chat with St. Augustine whenever the fit is on you. Finley scoffed. And that Bain can play games with Helen of Troy. Oh, nothing of that sort, the canon paused. How may I make it clear? We live only once, and the experiences of that one active life are eternal. I don't meet Augustine in the Cross Keys Hotel, say, because he never was here, naturally, and because I wasn't at Hippo in the 5th century, naturally. Augustine and you and I are joined only through the mystical body. As for Bain, may I speak for you, Bain, an hour strolling the moors of that lady merely talking means more to him than could be the conquest of the face that launched a thousand ships. We don't long for the physical presence of Augustine or of Helen, because the reality which we know satisfies us, which it didn't when we were in time. I don't mean that this fuller reality of ours is static. Instead, our awareness of every timeless moment grows deeper and takes on more meaning. For a small instance, though you and I talked in this room before, you don't remember a word I said. I suspect, however, that you'll not forget what I'm saying to you now. What about these expectations of yours, when there's nothing new under the sun for you? When you do nothing but enlarge the same experiences, Finley thought he had caught this subtle canon there. Expectations, Finley, this living moment in the cross keys isn't the whole of the life eternal. Hardly, the canon chuckled, nor is the reenactment of the love of created things the whole of what we expect. You know the phrase the beatific vision? Well, that's not a phrase only. That vision is yet to come for Bain and for me. Perhaps we experience the provisional judgment now and so remain tied in some sense, to experiences within time. When the last judgment's done, perhaps all expectations will be fulfilled, so that there'll be nothing left to long for. These are only words to you. Formerly, they weren't much more than words to me. Words are tools that break in the hand. After you cross the border, you'll know the truths that I can't put into words for you. There's the last desperate resort of Parsons, Finley thought, flight into bloodless abstractions, empty formulas. He would try another track. I fancy you must have been a model of propriety, Bain, to deserve a comfortable birth in eternity like this, eh? I didn't deserve it at all, Bain looked down at his strong hands. I told you, I was good for nothing but killing, and that was true to the very end, until almost the last. I was all ego, loving nobody but myself. My last action was to destroy a man, or what had been a man. Men are always saying that they'd die for this woman or that one. I said it too, but what mattered... I did it, for that young woman I mentioned. I did it to shield her from somebody, and I took him with me. It was a beastly business on a high roof, and we went down together, into a river. Do you know, Findlay, ordinarily we don't talk about crossing the border. I took the liberty of asking you how you crossed, but only because I sensed that there was something peculiar about your coming. It's bad form, since nasty memories don't fit in here. Yet, in its way, even that last fight of mine was a high experience. That one decent impulse of mine is why I'm in the same room with the cannon. Because of that violent act for love, she'd never have taken me. Everything else I'd done was forgiven. Except for the tolling of the bell, there was silence for a little space. Finley had to admire Bain for his consummate skill of straight-faced yarn spinning. Then Bain added, Now, beyond desire, I'm her friend and know her always. Just like Dante and Beatrice, Finley commented, puffing dryly on his cheroot. Rather, said the canon, knocking the ash from his cigar, like Dante and Beatrice. 
How often did these two saturnine comedians find the opportunity to pull some chance visitor's leg so systematically? You gave your life too for a female friend, Canon Hoodman. No, the Canon answered. I had no choice as to how I crossed. My wife and I crossed together. I believe a bomb struck our old house in the close, so we've never been parted. She'll be in the congregation when I give the homily at midnight service, and we walk back to the close together. People who come after us in time don't know that handsome old house of ours, more's the pity, but nothing that's in time can endure forever. For my wife and me, nevertheless, every stick and brick of that house endures in eternity. They couldn't really expect him to swallow all this farrago. Of course, these two were aware that he knew they talked tongue-in-cheek. They hoped to provoke him into an outburst of indignation at such stuff and nonsense. Finley wouldn't let them have that satisfaction. So, you have the pleasure of your wife's company, Canon, he said smoothly, and you enjoy your lady friend's conversation, Bane. That's pleasant. But what about souls you're not so fond of? That man who rolled off the roof into the river with you, for instance, Bane. That foul chap, Bane blew a smoke ring. God only knows. You can be sure our paths don't cross. In our father's house there are many mansions, but they're not all on the same floor. Finley yawned. The jest was wearing thin and he was dog-tired, and in his luggage those capsules awaited him. These two jesters might be sobered by what they would read about him in the tomorrow's papers. After all, his would be the cream of the jest. You're quite worn out, Finley, I can see, the canon was murmuring. And we've been boring you. Jimmy, is that Mr. Mariner still up? Good. Ask him to come if he has a moment. The manager of this old-fashioned hotel turned out to be a small, quick man with deep-set eyes. Something for you, Captain Bain. Mariner, Bain said to him. Our friend Finley has come a long way. Show him one of your rooms, will you? He still thinks of taking a train, but he might be tempted. This is a very old house, Finley. Part of the building medieval. Worth seeing. Worth sleeping in. Would you prefer a haunted chamber, Mr. Finley, Mariner offered. Apparently he was a confederate of Bain and Hoodman. I don't know that we can supply a spectral monk on demand, but there's a room available where Coleridge slept once. Mariner led the three of them up a short flight of carpeted stairs, down a longish corridor, up a longer and steeper flight, and round a corner. Behind the door which he opened was a snug single bedroom. Massive beams in its low ceiling, papered in blue, with a glistening old bedstead of some rare wood. If you'd care to sleep deep, Mr. Finley, Mariner said, I'd wake you when you might require a call, supposing that you should want it at all. I must have missed that train of mine long ago, thanks to these gentlemen, Finley answered. To sleep in that old bed for eternity, that prospect was far more attractive than were those capsules waiting at the station. It's your choice entirely, Ben was saying in his ear. Free will, you know, old man. Yet why choose either bed or poison? These chance companions with their long-faced wit had cared enough about him to twit him for an hour. Somehow they'd put heart into him. His cough seemed to have faded away altogether, and these two friends and the atmosphere of this old house were invigorating. He wouldn't swallow those capsules tonight, after all, he decided. Perhaps never. But Marion mustn't be left to suffer alone, and there were the sensibilities of railway porters to think of. Hyde Park breakfast or no Hyde Park breakfast, something yet might be accomplished in London with somebody or other, given will, given spirit, given grace. Behind this evening's charade, there had moved some quickening power, some hint or glimpse of hope. How a man dies, and with what justification, this absurd interval of talk had wakened Finley to awareness of such matters. 
He would not plunge himself into nothingness without another effort or two. Canon Hoodman had been watching him closely. If you feel ready for a bed, the canon remarked, laying a hand on Finley's shoulder, you'll not find a better one than this, Mark. But if you've got duties you can't ignore, why, there's always a London train for you. No thanks, gentlemen, Finley said. I have miles to go before I sleep. Bane nodded. You still have hostages to fortune, eh? And after all, that bed can be yours whenever you need it. I'll walk you to the corner. At the front door, Finley shook hands with the canon and Mariner. The two of them, if Mariner was privy to the plot, kept up to the last their roguish elaborate pretense. We'll have more to discuss when you come to us, the canon told him. I don't expect to pass this way again. Yet you shall. Finley and Bane went down the white steps and into the drifting mist. The canon waved. That short street, it turned out, was quite as lovely as Finley had thought it to be, in his glimpses before Bane had drawn him into the cross keys. If only he could have lingered to inspect it more closely. Ahead of them, the stragglers were hastening through the churchyard and into the lighted church, and that bell tolled on. Do you have any idea when the first morning train will leave Bane? It'll be there for you, old man, and all of us at the cross keys will be there for you when you look for us. Ask the cabby. Then the bell ceased to toll. Finley glanced at his watch. He must have stopped in the cross keys. He looked backward toward the cathedral tower, yet surely the cathedral clock too had run down, and at the same time, for it stood at half-past eleven. Here you are, Mark, Bane was telling him. Do you make out a cab rank to the right? Just wave and shout. Wage the good fight, old man. Sure enough, there was a taxi a few yards distant on the modern street which intersected this ancient lane. Finley waved and shouted, and the taxi rolled to him. To the station, sir, the driver was asking now. Just a moment, Ralph, you rascal. You've given me a lively evening, though. Finley turned to face Ralph Bain. Bain was not to be seen. Nor was the Crosskeys Hotel only a vacant site strewn with rubble. The charming houses of the old street were gone, or at least most of them, and those which survived were ghastly derelicts. That street was wholly lifeless. Finley swung back toward the taxi. Beyond it was the church with the Norman Tower, or rather the wreck of a church, all dark, no glass in what remained of the window tracery. The nave was roofless, a mercury vapour lamp in the modern street glowered over the churchyard, and by it Finley could make out a metal sign which read, Public Gardens custody of the Ministry of Works. Station, sir. Time enough to catch the midnight train for London. You can hear it rumbling down from the north now. Findley tumbled into the cab. Tell me, tell me, how long has that street been smashed? Before my time. 1941, they say. Them German firebombs done for it. Some year, they say, the corporation will get round to building council houses there. And what's the name of that street? Saviour Gate, sir. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? So that was Saviour Gate by Russell Kirk, which is one of the series of Christmas-themed stories I'm doing for the Classic Ghost Stories podcast. Um, It's the second Russell Kirk I've done, and you might ask why. And, uh, well, there are two reasons for it, really. I got a book a long time ago called the Folio Society Christmas Ghost Stories book, and this was actually my favorite story in it, and I didn't know much about him at the time, Russell Kirk. 
And subsequently, I purchased from America his uh, book, Ancestral uh, Shadows, uh, for 25 quid. So if I've paid 25 quid for a book, I'm going to read at least two stories out of it. But I do like the story, um, obviously. Um, it is a it's a good Christmas themed story. I think uh, the the last one we did, which was the Haunted Hulk, just happened to take place on Christmas Eve, and you wouldn't otherwise have known. Whereas this is this is all about um, an interesting version of Christianity, really, um, an unorthodox version of Christianity. I think Kirk was was very conservative, and therefore he was drawn to the traditional church and the traditional spirituality of Christianity. But some of this, I mean, his theology there is, um, I don't know how orthodox it is, really. But there is something really nice about, there you go, you know, you, you're late for a train, it's cold, you've got a cough, you've got a whole load of problems in your life, and suddenly you're pulled into this very, and I can just imagine this old in probably Jacobean originally, going back hundreds of years, with a lovely fire and you can smoke cigars and drink whiskey with your mates and just talk about this and that. And it's lovely and warm and it's Christmas Eve and you can hear the people going to church and there's the bells ringing. You don't have to go to church yourself. You can just hear it. it sounds like paradise. And it goes on forever. There's something, um, um, revealing my influences here. Um, a video that the Maharshi, uh, who, who was the founder of Transcendental Meditation, said about um, once you realize eternity is eternal and you, you are really part of it, you, you don't have that penny-pinching thing anymore. He, he talks about having not just one or two uh, pesos in, in your wallet, but just an infinity of them. So you don't have to worry about anything because you've got forever. And I think that is the message given here, although Kirk might not might not himself have been a practitioner of uh, transcendental meditation should he have lived that long. So um, the story itself, what, what have I got to say about that? Um, it's a, it is a classic ghost story. It's a moral ghost story. You remember I've got this thing about ghost stories being moral. Um, it is, well, it's a ghost story rather than a horror story in that it has a happy ending. It has an uplifting ending. Uh, it's very similar in lots of ways to Dickens's Christmas Carol. Here we have a man who's very troubled, who's almost giving up on life. He's got those pills in his pocket, and he's thinking about taking them. And um, I don't know if you know, in my real life, I'm a psychiatric nurse, and I work in front line with suicidal patients. So this is kind of, maybe that's why the story resonated. So um, there he is, and he has this relatively boring conversation. I think I love the setting. I love the idea of it. I love the uplifting message. The theological part of it is a bit dull, really. I mean, we get the point, and he just goes on and on and on and on, labors it. So I think it, the story, far bit from me, but I think the story could have been more effective. I think the setting's great. I think the concept's great. I think the message is great. But um, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, you know, the, the theology is boring once you get the basic idea. So anyway, that is Saviour Gate by Russell Kirk, and I'm going to be launching this around Christmas. Other things we've been up to, I'm out going a, a live ghost story thing tonight. I'm going to do a reading with my mate, Jonathan of the Hartwood Institute, and we're going to do a lot of spooky music and stories. And that'll, it's a sellout. They're all sellouts. It's great. Um, I've been working on the website. So check out that website, www.classicghoststories.com. Classic ghost stories, all one word, .com. Check that out. I would love if you went there. 
and there's various things and it's an expansion of some other things I've been saying in show notes. So there's various links and uh, you can see all the episodes there as well. So, okay, um, I'm not going to say any more really. You enjoy the wintry weather and wherever you are, take care of yourself. And remember what the story says. Something might be accomplished, however, given will, given spirit and given grace. I really believe that. You know, I really believe we can achieve things and you can achieve things and I can achieve things. So you all take care. Bye. Bye. <laughs>